Hey, I'm Ty Snaith, and this is A World of One's Own, a series of conversations with women and non-binary artists I respect and admire. The episode you're about to listen to is from Season 1, which was originally called A World of Her Own. It was part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at ACCA. For more information about the podcast and the artists I'm speaking to in Season 2, head to tysnaith.com. And now, here's the episode. I'm at the centre of my art. It's me that I'm trying to sort out, as in I'm trying to express and communicate with others ideas about what it is to try and um, live a life in a way that's fairly complex and yet quite truthful. Hi, I'm Ty Snaith and this is A World of Her Own, a series of conversations with Australian women artists I respect and admire. Today, I'm testing the limits and getting to the absolute core of things with visual artist Lou Hubbard. When she's not teaching at the VCA or solving art problems in her sleep, Lou has a really interesting studio practice. Found objects are tried and tested and subjected to acts of duress. Lou is like a kind of mad scientist trying to divulge herself to herself. It's funny, after talking to Lou, I realised that she uses this testing of materials to tell stories of psychological relationships, weaknesses, hierarchies, training and playing games. It's almost like the materials are actors in her weird ongoing film or play where Lou is the director. We talk about so many interesting things in this interview, including what it means to be really obsessed, having tenacity and bossiness and learning how to defer control and practice patience. I feel like Lou has found some great methodologies to reconcile aspects of her past. She's essentially curious and employs a kind of hard, reflexive thinking that I'm seriously in awe of. Today I'm speaking to visual artist Lou Hubbard. Or do you prefer Louise? Oh, no, I'm always Lou. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. would have thought so. Yeah. Just check. I did have to make a decision at some point. What was it going to be? Because occasionally it was Louise and it was Lou. And then I just went, no. Lou. Initially it was because of the a kind of androgyny associated with that name. And that was important, I, I think. And I was also making work that wasn't. I didn't believe fitted into a type of repeat work that was often associated with women's art of a certain generation. Huh. That's interesting, the androgyny of the name and how much of a role that plays in people deciphering you as a person. I mean, I, I get it every now and then because Ty's not a... Yeah. It's not associated. And often people... I turn up and people say, oh, we thought you were an Asian man which I always find so fascinating because I'm about as far away from an Asian man as you can get. Wow. But I do think it's helpful, actually, and having a name that's not clear that you're a woman or a man. Mm. Do you find the same? Yes, I guess people um, have made, I guess, uh, certain assumptions at times. But um, to be honest, I'm working very much within a local Melbourne scene um, I've exhibited in other cities and, and in other countries, but really I know that my community is here, and that's not to do with where the work is positioned and it's not to do with a lack of ambition. It's to do often with opportunities that have come my way or haven't come my way. Yeah. But most people, I guess, within a certain echelon of the Melbourne scene would know 
that I am Lou. They've either been taught by me because the other part of my life is very much about teaching. So, yeah, pe people have either, well, through word of mouth or, you know, just by um, looking at writing and so on, know that I am female, yeah. identify as female. Yes. On that, on that um, idea of opportunities, because this has come up quite a lot in the conversations, do you consider opportunities that come your way a driving force in making work or do you see that the work is happening uh, on its own all along and then if an opportunity comes up you go for it? Look it does work both ways but I am very driven by a deep attraction that I have to either a material conundrum or a, a spatial conundrum and I try and work out why it's so attractive to me why it has taken my attention and then that means I start operating either on the material or arranging things in a particular way just to, to get information back about myself and then mm. if an opportunity should come my way it'd be like what have I been working on recently what can I pull down from mm. the mezzanine my storage area oh yes I've made that that hasn't been seen yet so I, I, I move through a lot of works that don't, haven't yet found an opportunity yeah and yeah. it's almost like I mean and a few people say similar a similar idea of working or practice it's almost like an autobiography of objects that you store and as you get older you have this huge array to choose from yes it does accumulate actually and it can help tell the story of you from certain points of view that is true and materials for you are a type of language that expresses yes. yourself? Yes. The materials have developed over time and that, I guess, forms a syntax. And um, through that, I'm able to reuse those materials and forms to tell quite different stories. And I, I say the word yeah, stories as narratives and so on. It's very much a place that's quite deep inside me that comes out and can be read from different points of view and or just read simply through, I guess, um, aesthetic formalism. And is there anything about you, those those deep parts of you that you're expressing, that you don't want to come across? Is there anything that you think, oh, I don't want people to know that? No, um, I don't think of it in that way at the time. I'm actually working to, to divulge to myself what it is that I'm thinking and where my attitudes reside. There, those attitudes are quite deeply um, deposited and um, I think we're not always aware at all of how what motivates us and drives us so there's um, types of I guess some I call them illegal harmonies that become apparent in the way objects sit together there's um, just in life I guess um, rather incongruent relationships if, if, if they're there for me to observe they're there for me to make as well and they must also reside in me too mm. and um, so that that's very interesting to me so there's I don't have rules about what could or couldn't go together and I guess also in my teaching practice I emphasize that when people say oh it's a photo it must be part of a series it's like what is a series is a, a series like a group of people where <laughs> there's the runt of the litter like as in a family the perception that someone hasn't got quite as um, much endowment as another and so on all of those types of psychological relationships are perhaps mm -hmm. ones that I grew up with coming from a very large family mm -hmm. I play out mm -hmm. Through my work. I mean, in terms of that idea of a series and, you know, a legacy or a continuation of form or style, uh, you're one of the people that, and actually most women that I'm interviewing, I'm quite interested in because they don't necessarily maintain a very 
perfect or tight style throughout their practice and it actually changes throughout their life which naturally is what happens well I see it as much more of a feminine way of working in that you actually change your work changes with you whereas there's a long tradition of painters particularly where you have one style and then you keep doing that forever do you are you conscious of that or do you do you fight that in any way or do you feel like you have to keep repeating a motif in order to no I don't I, I, I guess um I'm aware that I'm driven by divulging um, and making evident attitude and I'm bringing form to that attitude. So whatever it needs, whatever, however it's revealing itself to me, I won't neat and tuck for the sake of making something look okay. The way it looks has to be very much a fidelity to the attitude and when it's enough it's enough Mm -hmm. and that way perhaps the work can still remain quite alert and and therefore alive and maybe if it works well in years to come I can look back at some old works and go it's still got something that's quite vibrant about it it's still alive yeah and I think I learnt that from Bruce Nauman when he was casting and you know he'd get all these globby bits of wax hanging down from one of his heads and he'd say no that that why cut them off why sever those it's already a severed head yeah and that and that I, I do love that idea of materials being alive as much as a person I mean there's a very Japanese thing where they there's one rock next to another rock and yet one has this is in you know it's that idea of animism I guess where yeah. it's imbued with a certain power that the other rock is just dull and dead but there there is an understanding in their culture that things can actually have a um a mysterious life within them that we don't... I mean, we understand, we can sense it, but we can't quite articulate it. Yes. I'm, I'm not sure that I am that kind of artist. I guess I'm at the centre of my art. It's me that I'm trying to sort out, as in I'm trying to express and communicate with others ideas about what it is to try and um, live a life in a way that's fairly complex and yet quite truthful to perhaps how others also encounter issues, problems, incongruities and so on that fascinate. Mm. And so I often like to think, if I'm not that different, but I just have happened to have a facility with working through materials to help communicate these things, if I'm at all successful in achieving that level of communication, then others might, on their terms, be interested in similar forms and similar sets of relationships. And then they do that, I guess, according to their own ish- set of issues exactly. within them, which That's will right. end up looking quite different, That's right. obviously. Yeah. Uh, on that, one question that I've been asking um, most people that I speak to in this project, what do you find most confronting about yourself? Uh, look, I, I, the thing I live with about myself, and I've always said I and I recognise this um, in others too, is the thing I've had to come, that I've had to work most hard with is me learning how to be patient, learning how to deal with this tenacity. It's not a stubbornness, it's a tenacity about holding on to something that I think is true and real, that has the propensity to become a soapbox and that I can't Mm. back down from. Now, it's great when I'm in the studio. In fact, my family often used to send me to the studio when I was getting a bit, like, too vehement in what I believe. (laughs) And the thing is, that rises up within me Mm. 
and I really can't put it down. I can't put it to bed. And look, in some people, it could be that I've got to have. It could be that you know, one has to have the last word. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think I worked out that that might have been something I had to do, but I've become conscious of now just putting ideas onto a platform and letting the um, others join in and have that conversation. It could be, look, I'm, I come from a large family. We had to speak quickly to be heard and, um, you know, we probably had to stamp our foot and be quite um, physically... Uh, assertive within so the thrust of that family. So it's a sense of competition? Or... It's a sense of, look, I think at one point it might have been a righteousness. Um, when it comes, but it, the tenacity is the need to push through form to represent this other part of myself in some form. But you find that confronting? It's confronting because I can be so passionate, so obsessed with the idea of something being right. Mm that I need to push for that and perhaps not listen to the other person's point of view. Yeah, I, I think see what you mean. and it becomes rather than a reconciliatory me that you know on a good day I can understand it's just the me in the world, the artist me doesn't sit down, doesn't lie down and that's why the studio and working through materials and letting me have that run in my paddock is really um, a really great thing and a very necessary thing, not as therapy, but as no. a way of letting that out. And I can push materials around and I can place things and I can make up all sorts of... It's a bossiness, it's let's a say. It's been very, it? very much a sense of control, but um, it's a very bossy part of me. And so for you, I mean, from what I'm hearing, part of what you find most confronting about yourself, it drives your practice, really, doesn't it? It does, it does drive the practice, but it also means I've probably learned to ask other people for their opinions mm -hmm. about things because I've been in a... Um, administrative and managerial position in my workplace just with a, a, a small number of people but because I could have a I guess a facility for running roughshod over people in case if I wanted to always have my way I've learnt not to have my way at all in fact don't even put out my way until I've heard from others what their way might be so now deferring has become I think a very positive part of how I work with others. Well you do definitely do that well as a teacher and it's not always your, not every teacher's like that either no. but you, you have a way of sort of understanding and accepting even if you don't agree yeah. necessarily. As a teacher you're, you you're looking at lots and lots of practices that are often in no way associated with where you would make art from and so you're having to kind of draw on a relationship to contemporary art and understand um, quite quickly how someone's practice fits into a, that particular lineage. Mm. Yeah. One thing I find difficult personally, because I definitely identify with that idea of tenacity of practice that sometimes can be just relentless and you can't sleep or you can't focus on anything else. And one thing I found difficult was um, trying to be selfless enough to have a family and live with that part of yourself, which I can't kill off, even if I wanted to. Mm. And I know a lot of women feel like they should stop that in order to, you know, give that energy or whatever to, to their family, to their children or to their partner. How did you deal with that? Because you obviously didn't turn it off. Um, or did you? I, I did actually for a small while. I also found myself working in an area... Um, of creative endeavour that was not very suited to my personality. What was that? It was filmmaking, oh, writing, nice. writing and directing, and waiting for others to give me the funding to work at the level that I wished to and that I thought was necessary for certain projects. So um, 
when I got back to my art practice, I had to find it for a start, but I, I, the tap was turned on and it, I could immediately pour into that studio practice um, a lot of pent-up creative expression. And I had been out of the art world for about 15 years and it had changed enormously from the 70s to the 90s. So um, whilst I was aware of postmodernism and um, many other sort of movements, I was really dealing with cinema, and cinema always felt to me like it was a bit behind in yeah. uh, areas. But with so I, I happened to have a, um, a partner who's incredibly nurturing, who, who always knew he wanted children, and I never really did know about that. Um, so when I had two children. I think I controlled them in a way that in, in, with the first child, there's five years between the two children, particularly mm -hmm. with the first child, I, I guess, tried to manage her activities, manage how we could get along and through, because I've grown up in a, with an educator as a father and I, I, my mother learnt music and so on, I felt like I'd always been on the end of training. Why training is such a theme in my work is because I know it really from lots of different points of view, mm. from both being the guinea pig and from also putting others through their paces and playing games as a child. Before I had a horse, I played having a horse. I played dressage games before I knew what dressage was. I mm. played having a soccer team with three people, myself and two sisters. I, I played at being um, in the military. I played having a service station. I played lots of ways of controlling and having process in my games that replicated experiences I had observed in real life. I guess that's what kids do, but I did yeah. not play nurturing games. They were games yeah. about being the boss yeah. and about having a team yeah. and, um, yeah, having precision in training. And so with your children, did you make it very clear that, that you sort of had your world and then you were also there to help them, or how, how did you...? Well, I didn't, uh, my youngest was five really before I was getting so close to the edge of being extremely depressed that I needed to get my practice back because whilst um, I had two very healthy and happy children and I was in a really great relationship, there was still this hollow and I, and, and filmmaking was not fulfilling that. Mm. And uh, I also knew that I'd, I'd started to paint again and I'd started to become obsessive about things that I saw out in the world. I'd look, I'd, I'd look at shapes and forms and suddenly think that they look like other things. And But in a way that wasn't just a passing time of day, I'd say things like, that man, his head is so much like the, a loaf of bread. <laughs> I, I actually now have to draw it. Oh my God, it's like a brioche. Yeah. That, so I was starting to get back relationships of form and people like a visual language that had it been started switched to, off or yeah, something. that's right and it's it started to come back quite strongly and I had um, the children had just started school and I just knew it coincided with I started to make a, a documentary about um, world music it was a big topic in the 90s and um, and it, it coincided with issues of cultural appropriation and um, uh, I was working with um, a, a different director and uh, co-producer and we're making a, a film really about other people's creative endeavours and I suddenly thought hang on I'd rather be on the other side of the camera I'd rather 
this is the, my creative life has come to making things about other people's You'd rather be the subject. That's right. And I knew then, I didn't really want to be the subject, but it was a reckoning with things mm. have gone cockeyed in my filmmaking world. I need to be very creative, not somebody organising knowledge of others. It, mm. it just was, yeah, it was quite um, confronting. But amazing that you had that reckoning and then you followed through. I had to follow through because I was very on the, on the brink. The, I was looking into the abyss. It was, as people just, oh, it sounds like a cliche, but no, you people do describe that. And I just thought, I have to be well for my children and my husband. There's nothing that appears to be wrong, but it's very deeply out of, my, my psyche is out of alignment. I think this happens, it's quite a common story with a lot of women at that point of having their second child and then it's just grown up and then they think, oh, where did my self go? Where did my life go? Where did the world that was nurturing before go for mm. me? And I've always felt lucky I continued a studio through that time, fiercely fought for it. I think it's a difficult point in a, a woman's life is that after that you either then fight to get it back mm. or on the right track, I guess. Yeah. Or you let it go and then you're in this kind of abyss, as you say. Yes, I, 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 I do recall reading a lot um, with the children being young, but the obsessiveness in my reading habits would be indicative, I think, of um, what might have been missing in a broader creative output. I would get onto an author like um, Flannery O'Connor and I, she died quite young, so she has only one no, novel, novella, many, many short stories. And so I I've started reading, read so I read the, all that there was to read about her, but then I started reading about her estate. And then I was reading about, reading about the estate and any letters that had been written. So I suddenly went down into very obsessive reading modes, Virginia Woolf. So then I read all there is to read of Virginia Woolf, and then I read Hermione Lee's huge biography of Virginia Woolf, and then I go, oh, I've got to read another biography to check the details. So the cross-referencing Cross, yes. and all of that obsessive stuff that I can do in my yes. practice and the filing in the archive, I was looking for a bigger repository mm. for a physical and intellectual engagement. Mm. That was that that now is what, when you say, what did I do when the yeah. kids were growing up? Also, my younger uh, my Older daughter Zelda, age four, wanted to play the violin. She really pestered for a violin. So we got her a violin. She started learning just before school started. And about four years in, she was very good. She seemed to have some propensity. But I, I, never, I never thought, oh, she's going to be in an orchestra or anything like that. But I, was, I thought, oh, I know how to help her learn. We got her a teacher and I was very diligent about making sure she practised at the same time of day. Now, this was me going back to the childhood Your games childhood. of this mm. is how you do this is how you do it same time each day eat before you do it and I just really loved going through those paces with her and then I, I guess when she was about year seven or eight she wanted to give up and I then had to do the sort of si child psychology of oh no Zelda look you've come this far and what I really should have done listen mm. to her in a way but because I guess at that stage she hadn't yet grown up big enough to tell me about me. She did when she, when she was 15, 16, she'd got something like grade six um, in violin and she basically said, no, I really do want to stop now. And, she, and I could hear it. Mm. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah, so I, I, I consider that a, actually quite a mistake that my relationship with Zelda in, in 
her development is very much about teaching and about something like that kind of discipline. I wish I kind of was a bit more of a knockabout person, but I'm not. Um, and I guess the kids know that I'm a nutcase now and that uh, they can see from the art I make what's going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I often think that with my own kids. They know they know deep down what you are. I think yeah. they know probably better than we know yeah. what we are. But one thing I was interested, just going back to how you were talking about, you know, reading a biography of, about a woman and then tracking down all the facts and cross-checking them, because I feel very much like almost for me this project is part of that process right. for me. But do you consider, is it always women that you're interested in reading about? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, no, I, well, I went on a big Sam Beckett trip. Like this is, I've got my practice back, we're well into it. But about, about 10 years ago, I went on a big Sam Beckett reading um, area. I'd known about his theatre and I'd been, been to see many um, productions, mm. um, particularly, I guess, when I was at art school, it was a performing arts um, area uh, associated with the degree and I, uh, you know, things like Crap's Last Tape and Endgame had been um, amazingly performed at, at my school. But I, I'd left, let it go but always thought, yeah, I like Beckett, I like Virginia Woolf, you know, it just felt like that's kind of part of a, I guess, a classical, contemporary classical tradition. But I got really interested in Beckett the man and I think I went on a bit of an obsession with him yeah, yeah. and um, and I know that people started doing PhDs on Beckett and I thought oh Beckett's becoming very popular again but I felt like I'd been going right under the radar and kind of looking at him I probably sexualized him I, I, I mean I've got no doubt that I, I did so okay. yes I do read men but yes um, as well but it's very of... particular I've read a, a huge amount about um, Bruce Nauman so it's almost yeah. like yeah I, I am obsessive I don't I'd ever say that I've read broadly but I have read certain people deeply yeah and their yeah. lives yeah it's a, and perhaps it's also about I'm trying to find out how other people do it it's actually to do with mm. their work and the structure of their mm. work it's not about how are you successful but it's notes about of course if you're wondering when to stop a work mm-hmm. how do the people who who you really like do it and people like Mike Kelly he's amazing the late Mike Kelly amazing writer and he actually is able to articulate his process. And it's really well documented. Yeah. Nauman's is very well documented too. When do they say no to people? Have I ever said that? <laughs> you know, so I always yes. model higher. Mm. I always do. Louise Bourgeois, I've read pretty well everything right. there is to read about her. Love her. Particularly after they're dead. That's it. It's finite. But the people <laughs> will no keep more. coming out with, they'll keep coming out with more ideas about, oh, well, I was her niece or I was her, whatever. That's all good. But at a certain point, I feel like I have somehow imbibed the essential Louise Bourgeois, Nauman, Mike Kelly. So yeah, there's plenty of men in my... So with Louise Bourgeois, because she's one of my heroes as well, um, do you think, I mean, thinking about your practice as well, I mean, I only knew of you when you were a certain age, later Mm. in your life. Yeah. And then you were just like everywhere for me. But for, it's uh, in sim. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's similar with Louise in that she went through a lot of her life before she kind of became public in her practice or even if she hadn't been making things before. Do you find that that's something that we should be 
looking at because there's not a lot of examples of that. Often in arts, you're sort of meant to have something going on by the time you're 30 or whatever, or win a be in a show, or win a prize. Or yeah, no, I don't. I just think everyone kind of matures at a different time. We've all got really different um, cards that we're dealt, and uh, I had to earn a living. Early. I, I mean, I went to art school and knew I, I was going on to film school and um, it's very tied up in the relationship with my father. A lot of my life has been tied up with either um, coming to grips with that relationship, expunging it, and then mm. growing up to perhaps not make the same mistakes and yet having made the same mistakes in the familial relations that um, I experienced, I have probably inadvertently handed on. But, no, I think I was a very late maturer. I... Had to, you know, I went to art school, but I knew I had obsessive, um, a sort of obsessive disorder then, because I knew that I was in the studio. I couldn't stop painting. I spent all my money on paint, house paint, um, canvas, which was I think I went to cotton, not cotton duck. I went to um, another type of cloth because I could get it wider and I could buy more cheaply, <laughs> and. I knew that I was solving art problems in my sleep and yeah so when I stopped I perhaps I put that part of my personality to bed it rose up again as soon as I got my practice back but Louise Bourgeois came rocketing through my life when I'd been out of the art scene I didn't know what was what I had to um, work out who was doing what in, in the world and I found Louise Bourgeois and her reconstructing the father works mm. and uh, writings just went straight into my veins. It was yeah. just not negotiable. I didn't know whether she was cool or not cool. I, I, this is not about cool. It's really no. about, okay, she found methodologies that really worked for her to mm. sort out the relationships that are, in, a, in some ways, irreconcilable. And I understand that some of these relationships are irreconcilable, but you can work with them and have them come, come through you, I guess accompany you through your life and I, I think I do that with my father. I spend a lot of time thinking, other people do too, but I do a type of thinking yeah. which is a, I guess it's reflexive and it's reflective and when I feel something's made me feel a certain way I really have to work out why because the feeling trips me up and often means I can't go forward. I, I experienced extreme jealousy in my life, mm. extreme debilitating jealousy. Wow. So when I, so this is a part of the obsessive thing. When mm. I'm really I, caught up in a, a feeling like that, I also say I never want to feel like that again. When I've been so depressed on the abyss, you know, looking into the abyss, I say I must do everything I can to never get depressed. To, to, I must avoid that. I must now, working hard and working through issues and being in touch with myself is about me keeping myself quite healthy for, for those that I love, too. Because when you know you have a propensity yeah. for something, you don't want to... You, you're trying to avoid that. Mm -hmm. And um, so I do that to keep myself um, available to others. Teaching is very good for me. Art making is very good for me. This is, these are all very different things to what it might look like outside. I don't really worry about all that other stuff the art world or the worlds mm. as I like to call them they, they ticker on other there's a lot of people who don't make art who are controlling that so hello that's just like it is a bit yeah. but when you say worlds I'm interested in that because the, the title of this project is a world of her own oh, um, okay. which is which is actually a spin-off from a, a room of <laughs> yeah, exactly. course yeah. and who yeah. I'm also obsessed with and that, I think that essay is incredibly important mm. uh, but 
Yeah, I was thinking about worlds as well. And often if I ask someone, oh, how do you, do you feel like you've had to almost not build your world, but like make a space for your world within those worlds? How do you fit into those worlds? Look, to be really honest, the world starts with me. Mm-hmm. Okay, like uh, this is the thing. Also, with the children, I once they could see that I was taking care that I was taking care of me and my needs. As selfish as that looked, they always knew where I was, and they could always tell when I was really listening to them or not listening to them. And that's not something. It was just your mind just wanders. Yeah. So I do a lot of things that emanate from me. Look, I, my husband's the same though, because he we we're both into a type of um, area of being very efficient and not with the day-to-day running of things. We don't do a lot of other things. We, we're either at home, at work, or we're either at a film, or I'm at a gallery, or I'm at school. That's about the extent of it. It's like, yeah, I don't do parties. I don't, there's a lot of things I don't do. Mm. Um, so I keep things incredibly simple so that I do admin for my job and for business of art very quickly as well. I answer emails quite quickly and curtly sometimes just to say yep got it I'm on yep Mm -hmm. no probs um just so that I can get back to the shave away the extraneous Mm -hmm. to get to the time that I need to deal with me sometimes that's about having a long bath sometimes that's about going I've got to get that machine to get it into the studio to test that thing because the obsessive part enough time all of that Mm -hmm. yeah so I've become you know I, I, I think I'm naturally attracted to efficiencies and I love timing things. I love, you know, hopefully being on time. But yeah, I, I I work very hard at carving away that world for me to deal with, because between family and making art, that are the absolute priorities. The rest takes care of people. Are they interested in what you do or they're not? I can't second guess that. That part of the world. I earn a living as well. I'm a teacher, so I don't have to think about things in a complex way about how am I going to get food on the table. You know, that that part of it I understand is very easy for me, but the being me is not easy. So that's the trade-off, I guess. So looking after myself in that way. And with I, I completely all of what you're saying resonates a lot with me, but one of the things that I find and I understand you have an issue with is um, sleeping at night. So, because I think when you've got an active mind that is constantly thinking of all the timings and all of the things and all of the other stuff that's going on with you and the materials and there's a lot going on in your mind. So how do you switch that off? Well, I either get incredibly tired after about three or four days or nights of being quite awake and perhaps not sleeping very well I then crash so yeah that that's um, it's great um, when that happens I actually have there's a sensual pleasure I have developed probably in the last 10 years although I've been fairly sleepless for 15 falling asleep watching a movie <laughs> or while my husband reads to me because he often mm-hmm. say do you need to be read to tonight I go yes I really need that's to be lovely. read to and he's an Emily Dickinson, like aficionado, and um, he's studying her for a project that he's working on. So he will read me to sleep. And then if he, but if it doesn't quite work and he stops, and I go, oh no, don't stop! I've just, I'm, I'm right on the cusp. Anyway, we, we, it's a funny thing. Yeah, a bit too much information. There. No, but the thing is, um, 
I sometimes in a day, a particular on a teaching day, I haven't had enough time to deal with the me part of the day, uh-huh. so that gets pushed into the night. Yeah. Or if I, I've, I've worked it on so many different ways that either it's not to do with the blue light or the computer yeah. or the iPad or the phone. <laughs> I've tried so many ways of working out is it this or is it that, that I now know, despite meditating, um, despite the no coffee, coffee, like Gosh. nothing makes a difference because there's the the other me that can't switch off. And even the, when the me too is talking to you now, Ty says, yeah. you must put that other part of you to bed mm. right now. It, it kicks up. It really is. It's like Doesn't like it, being told what to do. Not at all. Not it's, useful. Um, it's very difficult to harness that part of me. And other friends have said, oh, look, just die young then. Just do burnout, whatever. Maybe, you, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, I've thought of that. And I thought, oh, but maybe... It's about the people you leave behind and their regrets about you, and that's too complex to think of. No, I need to stay alive a bit longer. You need longer. to stay alive. Yeah. I really hope you stay alive a bit longer, oh, Lou, because yeah. you're an endless source of inspiration for oh, many Ty. people. Yeah. And I, I would love to keep talking with you all day, but we've well and truly reached our limit. So I'd like to say thank you very much. Pleasure, Ty. Yeah. When Lou says, I guess the kids know that I'm a nutcase. I love how it's like she's reached some kind of pinnacle of family truth. Another family truth that I identify with is how helpful it is to have a supportive partner, but also the idea of having a practice in order to keep yourself healthy for your family. Her tips to shave away the extraneous in our lives are great. Long baths and no parties and focusing on the absolute priorities first. As Lou says so correctly, the world starts with me. This conversation was recorded for the series A World of Her Own as part of the exhibition Unfinished Business, Perspectives on Art and Feminism at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. It was recorded by me, Ty Snaith. I'm an artist for those of you who don't know my work. If you enjoyed exploring Lou's world with me today, you might like to delve into some other worlds by downloading more episodes directly from the ACCA website. Visit www.acca.melbourne where you'll find the world of her own link under programs or from SoundCloud if you visit soundcloud.com forward slash acca underscore Melbourne. I'd like to give a big thanks to Beck Fari for audio post-production and Melbourne musician Fear, spelt P-H-I-A, for letting us use the track you're listening to, End of the Day, from her album The Ocean of Everything. Thanks for listening to this episode from Season 1. The podcast now lives at tysnaith.com, so head over there for more information about the show and the artists I'm speaking to in Season 2. And thanks again to Acker for all their support with Season 1.